0: Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In week four of our study on the life of the Apostle Paul, we will read words from Paul's first recorded sermon in the New Testament and see how Jesus Christ is the descendant of King David, who offers forgiveness and freedom through faith. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, as we continue to imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. As we have been learning from the life of the Apostle Paul, let's say together the Scriptures that I'm hoping will be emblazoned upon our memories as we go through this journey in the life of the Apostle Paul. Let's say 1 Corinthians 11.1 together. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That is what Paul was all about. He wanted to imitate Christ so that others would come to Christ. And so we are called as Christ's disciples to do the same. And then let's read together Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That eternal perspective that Paul had about his life. Everything he wanted to do was to bring glory to Jesus, to share Jesus. But to die would mean to be with Jesus, and that was to his gain. And so here's our big idea. Paul modeled a life surrendered to Jesus Christ for us to follow. Now, we are navigating, as we've said, through this journey, through looking at Paul's life as a series of journeys. And last week, I was grateful for Dale as he shared with us, as Barnabas and Saul, who maybe you caught that last week, was renamed to Paul in the passage that Dale shared with us from the beginning of Acts chapter 13, on the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home island. And they encountered a a magician, a false magician, Bar-Jesus, or Elimus, And Dale pointed out that we can call ourselves children of God, but still be children of Satan. And so, Dale, I really was grateful for your challenge to us to make sure that our full devotion is to Jesus Christ as we want to follow Him and Him alone. This week, as we turn to week four, we are going to take the next leg of Paul's first missionary journey. And this is Barnabas and Paul. And notice that it's still at this point in the book of Acts, Barnabas and Paul... That will eventually switch. And they are in Antioch in Pisidia, part one. We'll be hearing from Wes next week and part two. Um, But we are going to be looking at chapter 13, verses 13 through 41. So please open your Bibles there. And I confess, guys, I was thinking initially that I was only going to go through verse 31 because this is a healthy chunk of Scripture. And then I started getting into the text and I thought... I. There's, there's a reason why we're going to go all the way to 41, and that's because you have to. Because this section that we're going to read is Paul's first recorded sermon in the entire New Testament. So for me, to cut it short, when it actually starts getting really good, was, uh, would have been a crime and an injustice to the Word of God. So we are going to go all the way through verse 41. Verse 41. And we are going to see some really fascinating features of what Paul shares. And for me, as I, as I studied this this week, I was really drawn to a, a, deeper, love for, um, a deeper love for God's Word that points us to uh, the living Word, Jesus Christ. And the way that Paul weaves Scripture into his sermon is absolutely fascinating to me. And we'll get to maybe why he does it the way that he does it. But first, some context And when we have context, you know what that means. We have a map. Now, gentlemen, and for those joining online, I have been preparing you for these moments with all of these maps because we are going to see something really exciting. So if you look at this map, you see the island of Cyprus. This is the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. That just helps to put it in the the context of where this is on the globe. The Mediterranean Sea and the island of Cyprus, and the community of Paphos, which is right there in the middle with that red oval. Now watch what happens. Paul and Barnabas are going to go north about 105 miles to the city of Perga. So there's an attempt at some animation there with an arrow to take you right to the very southern part of what's now modern-day Turkey, um, right on the coast, and that's Perga. And then we're going to read that they go north another 100 miles to Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch in Pisidia, which is a community that was uh, founded about 281 B.C., as far as when it was established as a city, before the Roman Empire was begun. Um, But what we can learn about this is that this action takes place on the first missionary journey, which is around 46 to 47 A.D. And in Antioch Pisidia is located in a very mountainous range of central Turkey, the Taurus Mountains. And that would become a path that they would have to travel through to get there. Again, a Roman colony founded before Rome was even an empire, but taken over by Rome. And it was a military and cultural center that was very significant within this uh, area of ancient Turkey, and that is because one of the major Roman roads that was built during the Roman Empire, the Via Sebaste, which went all the way from Ephesus to the west, all the way to the Euphrates River in the east, a major trade route that this community, this city, was located right on that road. And so uh, scholar Merrill Unger writes the following about Paul and Barnabas and their decision to go to Pisidia and Antioch. With the gospel. In bringing the gospel gospel to Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were planting Christianity in the communication nerve center and heart of Asia Minor. So they had a very strategic reason for wanting to go to this city and bring the message of Jesus Christ to this city. Now, it was strategic, but I think they also had a personal motivation. And why else would they go to the city? Because they could have chosen other strategic points for sure. Well, I came across some some scholarship and Dale dropped in my office yesterday and we, we talked about this, that when Dale shared with us last week on the island of Cyprus, the proconsul, that governing official, Sergius Paulus. Do you remember that name from last week? Sergius Paulus. He's the one who was in charge and the magician Bar Jesus was trying to tempt him to not trust in the true Jesus but Paul and Barnabas showed the power of the Word of God. And Sergius Paulus, we believe, became a disciple of Jesus Christ. Scholars have, have shown and pointed that Sergius Paulus was, actually has family in Pisidian Antioch. They, they owned an estate. They owned land. They were very wealthy in that community. And so how remarkable to me that it's likely Sergius Paulus said, I have family that's in this region. And it's a strategic region. Please go share this Jesus with them. And if that is one of the motivations, how beautiful that Paul and Barnabas would go and God would use a Roman official on the island of Cyprus to move them to their next strategic missionary destination. So that is to me all very interesting context for what we will see. Now if we look at the structure for where we're headed today on this leg of our journey in Acts chapter 13, we will see an introduction, which will be setting the stage. We will see the anticipation, which is the Messiah's coming. We will see rejection and resurrection, which is the Messiah's ministry. And then we will see application, which is the Messiah's salvation. And when we get into the points 2, 3, and 4, The introduction is really setting the stage for what what Paul and Barnabas are doing. But then verse 16 gets into Paul's, like I said, his first recorded sermon. And he has this, we, we like to joke that preachers and teachers come up with three points. Paul has three points in his sermon, so maybe we actually get it from Paul when he preaches. But each of his transitions is addressed with a direct address to the people who are sitting in the synagogue. The first is uh, men of Israel, and then he says in verse. Um, then he'll say uh, verse twenty six, brothers, and then he'll say again in verse thirty eight, again brothers. And so each of those three transitions marks a different section of his sermon. So let's get into his sermon, and let's look at the setting of the stage in verses thirteen through fifteen. This is our introduction to what is going on. And keep in mind that map of going from Cyprus up north to Perga, and then Perga farther north into central Turkey to Pisidia and Antioch. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that is again on Cyprus, and came to Perga, about a hundred miles north, in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day... They went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So a few observations about what's going on here. We talked about the geography. We have in verse, six, uh, verse 13 that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is John Mark, who is a cousin or family member of Barnabas. And he's returning to Jerusalem. So he's leaving their missionary group. And that's going to be significant in about two chapters. We're going to find that 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 decision for John Mark to leave causes an interesting interaction between Paul and Barnabas later. And we don't know why he left. We don't know if he was homesick. We don't know if he was actually sick. Some scholars really believe that Paul got sick himself on this journey from Perga, where It was kind of a lowland with lots of marsh, and they think Paul may have gotten malaria because there could be some evidence from the Scriptures that that is the case. And maybe John Mark was afraid that he was going to get sick like Paul. Maybe he was worried about his mother because she was a widow. Maybe he was seeing some of the transition of leadership from Barnabas stepping back and Paul stepping forward, and maybe he he didn't want that. We don't know for sure. I'd like to believe that, that John Mark had good intentions in mind and not tainted motives for leaving, but he leaves. And then we find that Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue. And as it was customary in the synagogue meetings on the Sabbath, which was Saturday back then, they would read from the Law and the Prophets of the Old Testament. And they turn to Paul and Barnabas and they say, do you have a word of encouragement to share? And oh boy, did Paul have a word of encouragement to share that I bet they never would have expected. And again, this is his first sermon, first recorded sermon in the book of Acts, and uh, Dale pointed out to me yesterday, it may have been the only sermon where he actually is able to finish, because in his, the sermons that follow, it seems that he's getting interrupted, he's getting, he's getting beaten, he's getting dragged out of the city before he can even finish what he wants to say. But we are, are grateful to have this sermon that we can read from and learn from today. So let's look at the first part of Paul's sermon, which is the anticipation and the Messiah's coming. Starting in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, there's their first address. Men of Israel, and you who fear God. Those would be Gentiles who had trusted in the God of Israel. Listen. Listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And Then when he had removed him, he raised up David. Remember that word, raised up, David, to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised Before his coming, John had proclaimed, this is John the Baptist, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming the sandals of whose feet. After me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So this is the anticipation that Uh, Paul is talking about. You notice that he addresses these men as fellow Jews and Gentiles who believe in the God of Israel. And he uh, speaks much like Stephen started his discourse. He opens up and talks about this great history of God working and redeeming His people Israel because He promised to be faithful to them. Because He promised to be faithful to their ancestor Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants. He promised Abraham that he would be a blessing. He promised Abraham that he would have land as an inheritance. And we see each of the the threads of that promise through the covenant with Abraham coming to play here as Paul unpacks the history of God's work within his people. We see that, uh, that God's people were enslaved in the land of Egypt. And God delivered His people from that land of slavery and brought them out. And one of the reasons why I've I've enjoyed so much studying this passage, I said that it it really gave me a deeper love for the consistency of God's Word, the consistency of the Scriptures. Because you see some language in here about how God brought them out with an uplifted arm. And then we see in Exodus 6.6, Say therefore to the people of Israel... I am the Lord who will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. We then see that God moves His people into the promised land and Paul says that He drove out seven nations before them from the land of the Canaanites so that they could receive this promised inheritance to Abraham, given to Abraham. We read in Deuteronomy 7.1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Some people like to joke and say the stalactites and the stalagmites, but that's not in there. Um, but, But we read, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. So we see Paul is drawing a direct reference to this section of Scripture. And then as Israel is establishing themselves in the land, seeing victory over their enemies, they say, we want a king. God gives them King Saul. King Saul is ultimately not the man to lead God's people because of his divided heart, his divided loyalties. And so God chooses a man named David. And he says of David, he is a man after my heart who will do all my will. Paul drawing from the scriptures again, First Samuel thirteen fourteen. This is the prophet Samuel telling Saul, "Your kingdom is com- your kingship is coming to an end, and God is raising up another king after you." Here's what Samuel says to Saul: "But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you." And so we see Paul making a reference to David who was the great king of Israel. The Jews who living even in this part of Asia Minor. And by the way, uh, there were probably uh, years and years before this about 2,000 Jews that were moved because of the ruler of the time in in the world moved these 2,000 Jews to this part of Asia Minor. So that's why you have a significant Jewish population even in the middle of a Gentile land like ancient Turkey at this time. And they established a synagogue The synagogue was their center of worship. So they were very familiar with the Old Testament, very familiar with who David was, and their expectation was that David would have a descendant one day, and this descendant would once again rule on the throne in Israel, in Jerusalem, and God's people would be brought back, brought back from everywhere to be able to worship God again in their great city. So they would have been very interested to hear what Paul would have had to said about David and his descendant. And what Paul very clearly points out is that this great descendant of David is Jesus, the Savior that was promised. We find a very important passage in the Old Testament. If you have not underlined or highlighted or made some kind of notation in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in your Bible, that needs to change today. You need to go to your Bible and you need to underline these verses from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. As Samuel is, uh, is speaking to, uh, this it, it, is God speaking to David about what God is promising to do through David and his descendants. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so, in the ancient world, in in ancient uh, Jerusalem, and in ancient Israel, the expectation was that David would have a son. He did. His name was Solomon. And that Solomon would have a son. He did. His name was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam would have a son. And if I can remember who it was, I'll tell you his name. And so on and so forth. But the promise was that David would always have a descendant on the throne ruling. But then in 586 B.C., Babylon comes in and wipes out the land of Judah, destroys the city of Jerusalem, And people are wondering, is that promise still true? Is this promised descendant of David actually going to still come and still rule and still reign? And yes, he would. His name was Jesus, coming from the line of David as the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant that God made to David, saying, you will have a descendant, and from your offspring I will establish an eternal kingdom. And so Paul clearly points to Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise. He continues on by mentioning John the Baptist and even John the Baptist's own words from John chapter 1 that He is not the Messiah, but the Messiah is coming. I think the the consistency of Scripture is fascinating. And, And this is my theory. I don't have proof of this, guys, but I'm wondering that when the Law and the Prophets were read in the synagogue that Sabbath day, And the leaders of the synagogue turned to Paul and Barnabas and said, Brothers, do you have any word of encouragement for us? I wonder if what was read from the Law and the Prophets, if Paul took that and he did what's called piggyback preaching, where he said, oh, you've learned about this reading today. I'm going to show you how this reading actually points to Jesus. So maybe the Law and the Prophets reading, maybe that's somehow connected to David. We don't know for sure, but we do know that Paul took it as an opportunity. To appeal to his fellow Jews, but point them to something and someone much greater than they were even expecting. Then he, he continues by moving into verse 26, as we read about the rejection and resurrection. The Messiah's ministry, which these Jews would not have expected this to define the ministry of their Messiah. But Paul uh, continues in verse 26. Brothers, there's your second address. Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did uh, did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. In other words, just like you all are doing here. They did not understand them and they fulfilled them by condemning him and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death they asked pilate to have him executed and when they had carried out all that was written of him <coughs> excuse me they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb but god raised him from the dead remember i said remember that word god raised david up there's that word again in a different meaning God raised Him, that is, raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now His witnesses to the people. And I'm so glad I didn't stop there. We're going to keep going through verse, uh, through verse 37 for this section. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. Here's a quotation from Psalm 2.7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as far as the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. And now Paul quotes from Isaiah five three, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David, that great covenant promise to David. Therefore, verse 35, he says also in another psalm, And here's a very important reading from Psalm 16.10. Uh, Maybe these were the, the scriptures that were read in the synagogue that day. I don't know. But here's from Psalm 16.10. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, there's our word, did not see corruption. Uh, So we we find, guys, that God was extending this ultimate blessing to the descendants of Abraham through the promise to David in the person of Jesus Christ. And I don't know that the the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue that morning would have expected that this was the direction that this word of encouragement would have taken. But it is completely appropriate because of the way that uh, the way that Paul weaves the scriptures and points to Jesus Christ. We have a number of Old Testament citations, as we've mentioned: Psalm two seven, Isaiah fifty three fifty five three, and then finally Psalm sixteen ten. Which, if you go back to the book earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter two, when Peter is giving one of his first sermons, he also cites this verse from Psalm sixteen ten: "For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol." or let your Holy One see corruption. David originally wrote these words when he felt like his life was threatened, but he was trusting that the Lord would preserve his life from his enemies and those pursuing him. He knew that he was God's uh, lowercase Messiah to lead God's people, and he did not believe that God was going to let him see corruption, i.e. be killed. But we know that David, of course, did die, and that his physical body did decompose in the ground. But we see how this these This verse applies more fully to the person of Jesus, who yes, He did die after He was crucified for our sins, but His body did not see corruption because He was raised, there's our word, after three days in complete fulfillment of Psalm 16.10. It's a powerful way in which we see Jesus Christ fulfilling the Old Testament. A former professor of mine, Tom Constable, writes to summarize this section, Paul's argument was that God had raised up David and had promised a Savior from his posterity, that is, from his offspring. God had fulfilled that promise by raising up Jesus as the Messiah, whom he identified as his Son by raising him from the dead. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, has always been the Son of God. But now God declares that he is his son in the sense of now you are the son and heir of David and his kingdom to serve as the true Messiah and the true king. So where does Paul conclude this message? Where does he um, finish with application for his hearers and his readers and for us? And that would be the Messiah's salvation. This is the great... Like in in a great movie, when you have that great scene, when everything in the movie builds to that scene and you finally say, yes, this is what we are dying to see. Whether or not the hearers knew it, this is what they were dying to hear. Verse 38 and following. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. There's our our third address. Therefore, our third point of Paul's first recorded sermon. Therefore, let it, uh, brothers, to you. A quotation from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. So indeed, uh, we find that God has extended this salvation through Jesus Christ. We find that Jesus has fulfilled the law of Moses. We find that the law of Moses could never ultimately bring eternal life and forgiveness because it was not designed to do that. We read that Paul would take this principle from Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, which, by the way, essentially summarizes his whole message in the book of Galatians, which was probably written about this time, as well as the core of his message in the book of Romans. In Galatians 2.16 we read, "...yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ." So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, guys, if you go back to Acts chapter 13 and you read verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed. That word freed, you may have it, a little footnote in your Bibles, is the word justified. Everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So again, we find this foundational idea that Paul is trying to say. Fellow Jews, Gentiles who believe in the God of the Jews, you may be thinking that your own attempts to maintain some semblance of righteousness and obtain salvation before God is found in obeying this law of Moses, it is not and cannot and can never be obtained through that way. You must be freed and justified by faith in Christ alone. And just in case, Paul gives a warning as he concludes this sermon, a warning from Habakkuk 1.5, where Habakkuk, writing to the, uh, the recipients in the country of Judah, was saying, there is an instrument of judgment that is unexpected that God is bringing upon the evil that you see in this land, Habakkuk. That instrument of judgment are the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. An evil nation. You would never expect that God was going to bring this instrument of judgment, an evil people, to judge the evil in your own nation. But He, he did it. And Paul is drawing a similar, a similar warning. He says, fellow Jews, men of Israel, there is another judgment coming because God is doing a work that you never would have expected. You didn't know that when I was asked to give this word of encouragement at the start of this time, that I was going to bring you to this point and point you to Jesus, the Son of David, as the great, fulfilling, promised Messiah. But if you don't heed this warning, you will be found, much like the people of Judah when the Babylonians came, destroyed and devastated, and consequentially separated from God. In conclusion, we have William Neal who writes the following. isn't this warning section, parallel with the positive theme of the preparation for the coming of the Christ through Abraham, Moses, Samuel, and David, and John the Baptist, he, that is Paul, has interwoven an admonitory. Uh, adam, is that how you say that name? Admonitory. admonitory. Thank you. And that's why we come together in communion. Thank you. Right. Do we... Admonitory, an admonitory reminder of those who have failed to recognize the divine plan and purpose. The Canaanites, Saul, the Jerusalem Jews, and Pilate. Now he presents the dispersion Jews with a similar challenge to accept or refuse the gospel message. And guys, those joining us online, the the same warning is for us today. Will we seek to be justified? to be saved through our own efforts? Or will we seek to be justified and freed and forgiven through the efforts and merits of Christ alone, by faith? And some of you might say, well, I've heard that before. Why is he telling me something I already know? I think about that too. And I think about a story I once heard, Dale can confirm later, if it's just true or if it's just a rumor that's told by preachers. But, uh, but then Martin Luther Even if it's not true, I think think the point resounds, that Martin Luther once preached every week to his congregation about the love of God. And someone once asked him, Martin Luther, why do you teach every week about the love of God? To which he responded, that's because my people need to hear every week about the love of God. And I would say, gentlemen, those joining us online, I, every week, need to hear about the love of God exhibited through Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Let me read these words from Acts 13, 38 and 39 one more time and then draw our conclusion. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That is good news, brothers. And here's our point. Jesus Christ, the ultimate descendant of King David, was rejected and resurrected so that you might be forgiven and freed by believing in Him. And when we do, when we do believe in Him, guys, that's when the real journey begins. So that we can say, just as Paul did, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is because Paul modeled a life surrendered to Jesus Christ for us to follow. Thanks for listening to the Friday Men's Breakfast podcast. I hope you will join us again next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. Have a great week.